Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased, indeed honored, to have with us Sir Anthony Selden. Sir Anthony is the author, co-author, or editor of more than 35 books. And he has been in the past the headmaster of Wellington College, which is one of the UK's most renowned public schools. And in addition, he has been the vice chancellor of the University of Buckingham, which, which is, I still believe, um, the first uh, private university in the UK. Today, we are dealing with his newest book, The Impossible Office, The History of the British Prime Minister, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Sir Anthony. Hi. Hello. Sir Anthony, what is the thesis of your book? That the Office of Prime Minister has evolved over the 300 years since it was created in uh, April 1721. Uh, And it's changed and it's adapted as political parties have come up as the power of the head of state, the monarch has declined as cabinet uh, has come up and um, the power of the church has declined um, and the whole religious interest as general elections and popular democracy has risen and so on. Uh, and what's so uh, extraordinary is that it has become the longest surviving uh, leader's office in the democratic world and given itself to many uh, countries abroad in uh, much altered or slightly altered form. But it was a close-run thing, and and the office might never have emerged, and it might never have survived. Um, And there are many sub-themes, but it's looking at... I mean, for example, you know, is, is the office of US president still the same? Uh, for George, uh, as it was for George Washington, is it the same for, for Joe Biden? And that's fundamentally the question I'm asking. How has the Office of President adapted and survived and changed in, in the face of all those extraordinary changes, not least in the uh, geographic size of the U.S.? Now, in the beginning of the book, you have an imaginary dialogue between the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and the first holder of the office, we could say in retrospect, Sir Robert Walpole. But my my thinking in reading it would not have been in terms of um, a comparable personality and political style would have been uh, Boris Johnson to say someone like Bolingbroke. Yeah, I mean, they are very similar uh, personalities. The first prime minister is still the longest serving in Britain. We don't have defined limits for uh, our uh, Prime Ministers have uh, served 21 years uh, without a break. And um, he was, uh, like Boris Johnson, the current incumbent, incumbent been in office in number 10 for uh, for uh, two years so far. I mean, they were very similar. They happened to go to the same school, uh, Eton, to study in the same rooms. Uh, they then went on one Oxford, one Cambridge, but um, 
Their political careers were similar. They both came to power on the back of a political crisis. Uh, They both nearly died in the first year in office. They both were larger-than-life figures, charmers, uh, manipulators, uh, cavalier with the facts. They both lived in number 10 with women 25 years younger, who they later married. You know, we can go on and on and on. They're both born for theirs. Um, and the, um, the, the, the the office might have disappeared then when Walpole stood down in 1742. And for the next uh, 40 uh, years, there were a succession of 12 mostly ineffectual uh, prime ministers until a real landmark figure, William Pitt the Younger, uh, came to power, aged uh, 23, and, and he stayed in office for uh, the second longest period of any prime minister, 19 years, incredibly, during the Napoleonic Wars, French Revolutionary Wars, great threat, uh, just after the loss of America, he restored uh, the pride, um, in some pride in Britain after the shocking defeat uh, of the 13 colonies. I don't know what's happened to them uh, since that happened. Uh, and he restored national pride, economic and military strength of the country. So, and, and really after Pitt uh, died in 1806, the office was pretty much established. Who would you say was the closest predecessor to Walpole as prime minister? Would it be the first Duke of Buckingham? Charles II's um, um, leading minister in the 1670s, the Earl of Denby, would have been the um, Earl of Oxford at the beginning of the 18th century? Well, I mean, they have... Uh, Oxford is is closer, but if we go back to Henry VIII in the first half of the 16th century, um, there was Thomas Wolsey and Thomas Cromwell. Uh, Cromwell, the better-known figure, not to be confused with Oliver Cromwell, uh, but they had many of the similar, well, some of the similar powers to the Prime Minister, but they owed their allegiance wholly, uh, wholly to the monarch, who could then dispense with them rather than to the House of Commons or Parliament. Uh, and then under Elizabeth in the, the first and the second half of the century, there was uh, William Cecil and his son, Robert Cecil. And in the 17th century, again, a succession of right-hand men to the, to the monarch who, who uh, like Buckingham, who acquired uh, a lot of the powers of the prime minister, but again, they were just totally dependent on the monarch. And then what happened then is English Civil War, the uh, execution of the uh, the king, Charles I, in 1649, and uh, the, the, the interregnum, when Britain was protectorate, England was a protectorate under Oliver Cromwell, and then his son, uh, Richard Cromwell, the only two figures in British history to be both head of government and head of state. And the monarchy was restored in 1660, Charles II, but a much reduced power. And again in 1689, when another king departed, James II, um, the, 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 the new monarch uh, coming in had much less power than those great uh, 16th century figures like uh, Henry VIII and uh, Elizabeth I. Never again would a monarch be able to claim divine right from God to do whatever they wanted to do, that they were divinely ordained, they didn't owe their uh, sovereignty to the public, um, and they were able to, um, uh, they, 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 they were parliament 
progressively became important. Uh, and what then happened was that with Parliament's increasing power and the loss of royal power, uh, the king, by now it was George I from Germany, uh, said he needed to have a figure who he could make, uh, the, 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 really the organiser of his business in Parliament to make certain that he got his business through Parliament and got the all-important money that the royal family needed. And he turned to Robert Walpole as his first minister, and gradually that title of first minister morphed into prime minister. So it was a slow process in which really that the the eclipsing of the uh, sovereignty, absolute sovereignty, divine right of the monarch, uh, and the passing over uh, of power across into Parliament uh, created the space for somebody who was going to organise the king's business within Parliament, and, and that is the Prime Minister. Who, in your opinion, was the most effective Prime Minister in the period from 1742 to 1784? Well, definitely Walpole. Um, I mean, the, the only one to come from 1721 to 1742, the only one to come close to him was William Pitt the Younger's father, Lord Chatham, William Pitt the Elder. But he was only um, uh, first Lord of the Treasury, which is the Prime Minister job, for two years. And his greatest work had been when he had been overseeing foreign policy beforehand. Uh, so they were a pretty ineffective bunch. Sometimes they had real talent. Uh, Lord North, Prime Minister, uh, during the time of the um, uh, War of Independence, is heavily criticised. But his first years in office were effective. He, he was a good uh, financial man, good on business, meticulous. It's just he couldn't cope with uh, finding a right policy, should you be tough uh, and demanding, or should you be uh, conciliatory with the colonies, jibbing at the payment of tax and uh, at British law and jurisdiction over them? And um, he he didn't find the right path. I mean, a test of a great leader, a, a uh, Lincoln and Roosevelt. Um, is uh, they rise, uh, 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 Woodrow Wilson, is they rise to the occasion, um, they, they face difficulties that could have crushed them, but they rise to it in a way that other people might have made us think it was impossible to find the right solution. So uh, North couldn't find the right solution, and just you know, who knows what might have happened had he managed to um, curtail uh, uh, demand for uh, unilateral independence, uh, but but then the, the the next key figure by a by, by a yard is um, is William Pitt the Younger, and um, the only one of the really great prime ministers to have had next to no time in Parliament. But he lo- he learnt a lot from watching his father, uh, Lord Chatham, and his mother was constantly after his father died, constantly at his side, guiding him through number ten. Now, why was Pitt the Younger such an important figure as Prime Minister? I think that, again, we can make an analogy with presidents. Do uh, great presidents make history, or is, uh, does history make great presidents? And, uh, again, as in the U.S., you 
see that the the landmark prime ministers are those who are there at times of of great disruption, great crisis. So for William Pitt the Younger, the revolutionary fervor coming in from France, um, the French Revolution, 1789, the uh, unrest, um, the anxiety after the loss of the American colonies, the fear of, um, of independence, insurrection was very much on his plate. He had to um, do a, a lot of work to build up the national finances uh, and build up the country to prepare for a threat of the possible invasion from Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, he did all that and more uh, during his, his period in office. So he uh, rose to the challenge um, and found uh, a successful way for the country to go forward. Now, why, in your opinion, was Sir Robert Peel uh, a, quote, transformative prime minister, unquote, given the fact that he was only in office for approximately five years, was not re-elected, etc.? So the... the, the the, the, the great prime ministers, and in the book, as you've noticed, I pick out nine uh, great prime ministers on the BBC series. I included uh, Churchill in that list also. Uh, they are, um, are all there for a very long period of office, and, and Peel and one other are, are just there for five and, and six years. So you need, you need time, and it's hard for a... Uh, a single-term president to make much mark, um, easier if they're two. Um, and, uh, but many don't even make much mark after eight years, do they? And, uh, in, of course, in terms of changing the course of history. So you do need time. And if you've only got five years, you've got to get on with it very quickly. Often there's been a lot of pitch rolling beforehand. So there's been a backlog of work that needed to be done and can be got through fairly quickly. Uh, in Peel's case, uh, a landmark prime minister, because he changed the nature of the office of prime minister forever, um, he got rid of the treasury uh, and got rid of the title of Chancellor of the Exchequer, which who oversees the country's finances. He um, was the first prime minister after the 1832 Reform Act, which began the long, slow process of, well, relatively slow process of Britain becoming uh, a full democratic country with equal rights, equal voting rights for women and men, which happened in 1918 and 1928. And th th that gave birth to uh, parties that were no longer just factions at Westminster, where Parliament is. They were parties across the country. Um, and he um, was head of the first uh, head of the Conservative Party. Indeed, he uh, effectively conserved created the Conservative Party out of the uh, Tory uh, faction uh, that had existed beforehand. He was the first railway prime minister to use the railways that had grown enormously in Britain from the 1820s and 1830s to travel the country, uh, and he became a nationally known figure in the way that those prime ministers in the first century uh, often never left London apart from to go to their own country uh, house. Uh, he had a, a program for office, and he finally, and all great prime ministers, managed to speak for the nation. They're not just uh, the heads of their own narrow political parties, um, but they see themselves as head of the nation. And Peel did that when, in a very 
difficult uh, crisis following the uh, Irish potato famine, he uh, put his uh, what he considered to be the national interest above his party interest, and uh, and the great leaders become uh, something uh, that they acquire something of the mantle of a head of state, uh, representing the whole country rather than just the head of government uh, heading their own particular party, and that's you know, what he did. Uh, it was uh, possibly good for the. Uh, the right decision, uh, but it, for his own party, it meant they were then out of office um, uh, effectively for 28 years. Now, why do you characterize Lloyd George and Attlee as transformative prime ministers, but not Churchill? Well, I do Churchill in the radio series. So, Churchill, so, so to be a transformative Prime Minister, um, to be a transformative German Chancellor or French President or Australian Prime Minister, uh, what you will, um, I argue that you need to make the world, you need to make history, you need to have elevated the position of the country in the world, you need to have uh, had uh, crises, difficult uh, issues to face that you have, uh, the leader has taken the country through positively. In, change the position of the Prime Minister. Churchill uh, did very well, um, but he wasn't really, he wasn't ahead of a domestic government. Um, he was a great war leader. Um, he was a great statesman. He didn't change the office of Prime Minister one iota. Um, and um, so it, it's, he, he is so unusual, it's difficult to describe him. And the Prime Minister at the time of the First World War there was Asquith, the Prime Minister, that's the first um, uh, 28 months of the war, uh, which he ran ineffect- ineffectively. But then uh, Lloyd George, after him, for the final uh, 23 months of the war, was a uh, um, much more effective war leader, but also a dynamic peacetime leader as well, um, who did who changed the standing of the office of Prime Minister, changed the standing of the um, uh, uh, of the position of Prime Minister, the created an enormous office called the Cabinet Office, effectively created the Prime Minister's office, uh, not totally unlike the executive office of the President, changed the standing of Britain's position in the world, brought in uh, uh, significant reforms after the war, oversaw the partition of Ireland. I mean, these are epoch-making changes same with Clement Attlee, the Labour Party Prime Minister after the Second World War, uh, a giant on the foreign stage, was the Prime Minister at the time of the creation of NATO in 1949, the decision to build the British atomic bomb in 1946, to partition India in 1947, to ally with the US, um, President Truman, after the Second World War, rather than with uh, the Soviet Union, which many on the left of the party wanted him to do, and in domestic policy, he created the modern welfare state. He uh, redesigned uh, uh, economic policy, or his chancellors did. I mean, it's difficult to know where to stop with Clement Attlee. So uh, Churchill was a great leader at doing one thing, uh, which was winning the Second World War, quite an important thing to do. But and indeed, on the strength of that, he's commonly voted um, the top prime minister in Britain out of 
55 in in the quizzes that forever go on about who is best. But but he, I think you can see he was a different kind of prime minister. A lot of important work carried on about domestic and economic and constitutional and social policy when he was prime minister during the war, but it was done by others, not least by his deputy prime minister, who was Clement Attlee, who then went on in 1945 and became prime minister. Now, uh, what are the seven, what you characterize as prime ministerial skills? And in your opinion, which PM had the most of them? Well, that's a very interesting question. We haven't mentioned Margaret Thatcher. Um, she had many of the skills. So I'm, I'm leaving a challenge to the listeners and asking, uh, you, can you really be a great leader at a time of uh, tranquility? Uh, when everything uh, is just going along nicely? Uh, and why is it that so many great world leaders, not just in the UK, but nor indeed in just in the US, uh, but elsewhere too, are there these enormous moments? And they are, to some extent, made by these events and, of course, the way that they then rise to the events or, in some cases, fall to the events. So... Um, uh, the, you also need to have some qualities, but arguably the qualities are less important than the events. The qualities you need, the ones that Thatcher exemplified, are you have to be um, extraordinarily mentally tough um, and physically tough. You have to have a clear agenda or have an agenda thrust upon you. You have to be able to uh, appoint the right people um, and you have to be able to speak um, tolerably well. Now, not all of them did. Clement Attlee was a very poor speaker. Um, Peel, sorry, Pitt, and um, uh, Lloyd George and Churchill were world-class speakers. And um, so oratory helps. Uh, you need to be able to... Uh, cut through the detail to see to the point very quickly to have a very agile mind. So those are some of the qualities of being a prime minister, uh, effectively. Um, and no one has a complete skill set. And often it's their uh, their downsides, which are the um, uh, are the shadows of their strengths, which define them and make them interesting. And this is so much question in Britain at the moment with Boris Johnson, who seems to have very few of the qualities of a prime minister. And we've been educated to believe that prime ministers need to be all over the detail and to read everything and to uh, be extraordinarily hardworking. Um, but uh, Boris Johnson is more in the Eisenhower mould of of, um, uh, uh, of not pushing himself, or indeed Ronald Reagan, not... Um, uh, pushing themselves very hard, but having a very clear strategic sense uh, and appointing people and letting them get on and do do the work with that absolutely sine qua non requirement of being able to speak to the nation and being able to sum up uh, uh, the national mood. Uh, so that's what um, uh, Boris Johnson does so well, uh, whereas Thatcher did that, but also had all the detail, uh, had all the dynamism uh, as, as well. Uh, how would you describe the evolution of the powers of the prime minister vis-a-vis -vis the crown uh, since 1837? 
How important was the fact that Queen Victoria? So, so 1837, um, uh, reminding uh, listeners, not the one needs to remind your listeners, uh, was the moment when the young Queen uh, took over. Um, Britain's only had two female prime ministers, but it, out of 55, but it's had, uh, uh, depending how you count it, six, seven female monarchs. Um, and so it was um, Victoria when she came to office. The power, this was 1837, the, the key dates in the eclipse of royal power are uh, 1649, when the king, Charles I, lost their head. Didn't, he didn't have a lot of power when his head and his body were in different places. But when the monarchy was restored, it was a lesser monarchy. And, uh, and the sense of parliament and the army having real and independent power, uh, which was not derived solely from the monarch, uh, was taking root, and again, 1688-1689, uh, very significant. Uh, and then the, the long-serving George III, uh, beloved by American audiences as the uh, evil, bad monarch, um, who was um, on the crown when, um, on the throne when uh, the American Civil War, American War of Independence occurred, uh, you book out by the biographer Andrew Roberts in the UK, arguing that maybe he wasn't so stupid after all. But um, he had fits of what we can loosely call madness. And from 1810 onwards, um, whereas he had been a very effective monarch earlier from 1760 onwards, I mean, it was in, it, he reigned for 60 years. The 60 years then was a lot uh, longer than 60 years is now uh, with um, life expectancy and mental and physical health far less uh, robust. So last, he, he lost effectively the last 10 years of his reign from 1810 onwards. And his son, uh, George, who became George IV, became the regent. Uh, and, and neither he nor William the fourth who took over from both of them were, were there between 1820 and 1837 before Victoria. None of them did anything to add or regain power for the monarchy. Uh, Victoria still was very determined to, to, to be sovereign with independent sovereign power that the prime minister was her prime minister. It was her government. It was her army. It was her cabinet. It was her country. Um, and very conscious of that, even though uh, she was uh, um, uh, so young when she came uh, and succeeded. And But she, once her own husband, uh, Albert, another German, uh, died in uh, uh, 1861, um, she then retired from the public scene for... Uh, several years, uh, and during that withdrawal, the monarchy was able to increase, uh, sorry, the monarchy was losing its power, uh, and uh, Prime Minister, particularly Gladstone, the Liberal uh, Prime Minister, and Disraeli were 
uh, clearly emerged as the dominant forces. And by the time that Victoria died in 1901, um, the lingering powers of the monarchy had pretty much passed to uh, the politicians, still more so when in 1911 uh, a most important act, uh, a Parliament Act, passed power from the hereditary principle in the House of Lords through to the directly elected House of Commons, and then the 1918 and 1928 Reform Acts giving um, the, the vote to uh, every um, man and woman over the age of uh, 21. And, and, and that um, at that point, the, the, the monarchy, with rare exceptions, um, uh, was no longer had power, but they retained a powerful influence. And I would say that today in 2021, um, uh, the the monarchy and the royal family are still enormously powerful. I mean, just looking at today's news, uh, the Queen is making important uh, statements. Uh, Prince Charles is leading the BBC and the national news because of his comments about the environment. And uh, the Queen's second son, Prince Andrew, is all over the media for um, uh, less uh, reputable reasons. So the, the, the hold that the monarchy has on the country is still intense. It is the monarch, uh, I would argue, that uh, armed forces go into battle for, not the prime minister. Uh, it's the monarch who holds the country together. That's a very pertinent issue uh, in Britain with the potential loss of Scotland uh, or gain for Scotland of independence and freedom, depending how you look at it. Uh, Northern Ireland may be reuniting uh, with Southern Ireland after Lloyd George's partition. So uh, the monarchy is still uh, has enormous authority, if not direct power. Uh, would have there been a different type of evolution of the crown vis-a-vis -vis the prime minister if if um, Victoria's one of her, Victoria's cousins, either the King of Hanover or the Duke of Cambridge, had succeeded to the crown instead of her? Well, that's a great question. And uh, like, like all great questions, it's impossible to answer. And one, one, one doesn't know. I, I think that um, the hyper-competent uh, Prince Albert... Uh, who was uh, not just a great administrator, saw himself running the monarchy jointly with her, uh, but also a great engineer, great scientist, great builder, um, was um, w was extraordinarily influential. I don't think, however, that there was scope to have had uh, a, a powerful monarch Again, if you'd had a George III coming to power in the seven, for example, and we know what he was like, um, uh, the, the mood had moved on and, and politicians would not have liked to have been interfered with. The, um, so bit by bit, powers were lost um, from the monarch about the timing uh, uh, and the calling of elections and the selection of the prime minister and patronage powers of appointment segued across from Buckingham Palace uh, to Downing Street, from the monarchy to uh, the prime minister, from the head of state to head of government. 
Did not George V prevent uh, Lloyd George from sacking Sir Douglas Haig? Yes, and uh, there were continued examples in, in um, uh, the First World War of George V uh, making minor interventions um, in 1931, um, George V again, um, uh, 90, um, with, with very pronounced views about the formation of a national government. In 1940, George VI, his son, uh, views about the appointment of Churchill. But, but, but these were just um, the, 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 the late, last um, a, a, a glow of political power. A, a fire often can burn very brightly just before it goes out. That's, I think, these are just the flickers of that happening. Why has the importance of the role of foreign secretary declined in the last 60 years? And is it is that decline permanent? I think it's permanent. Um, and I think it was pretty inevitable that was going to happen um, uh, because um, I think it was pretty inevitable because of changes in technology. Uh, when you had the first prime ministers in, uh, in in Britain. There was a foreign secretary of the office was created in 1782, uh, but before then it was overseen by two people. And uh, the figures on the spot, uh, the ambassadors uh, would have letters written to them, but there were no underwater cables till the 19th century. Uh, there were no uh, flights, uh, travel uh, took a very long time. Communication was by the speed of hoof or uh, horse's hoof or, or, or foot. Um, but from the 19th century onwards, um, with underwater cables, with the telephone, with the railway, uh, 1878, the first prime minister in office to travel abroad was Israeli. Um, the prime ministers were able themselves to travel abroad. Um, the underwater cables meant that now, and then the coming of radio from the 1920s meant that commanders in the field could receive direct instructions from number 10. Um, and progressively, the foreign secretary was, was sidelined. Uh, so were ambassadors, because the conversation became much more between uh, the principal figures. So you can see coming back to um, the uh, 1910s, uh, it was the Foreign Secretary Edward Gray who was dominant in conversations and talking to the White House. Uh, but then uh, the first U.S. president to travel to the U.K. Um, was in um, uh, the first U uh, president was Woodrow Wilson for the Paris Peace Conference after the First World War. Ramsey MacDonald, 10 years later, the first uh, prime minister to travel abroad. When you start getting these travels, uh, uh, when they can start talking to each other on the phone... Uh, when in the Second World War, uh, Roosevelt and Churchill are communicating with each other, of course communication is happening between 
uh, was it Stimson, um, was it Marshall, um, who um, Secretary of State, and Anthony Eden, who was the Foreign Secretary. But the, the, the conduct of, of, of war was, was much decided by the two principal figures. After the, the, the Second World War, the last enormously powerful British Foreign Secretary was Ernest Bevin. Um, and after that, the power uh, faded. Number 10 started building up its own, um, uh, its own foreign policy capacity with foreign policy advisors in Downing Street. And um, uh, so, so, so that, that process uh, was inevitable because of technology. Conversely, why has the role of Chancellor of the Exchequer grown so much in the past 180 years? Um, the, the decision by Peel to, in 1841 to dispense with also being Chancellor of the Exchequer was very significant, though he did carry on giving budget speeches. And it meant that from 1841 to 1916, when Lloyd George created the the war, the, the war secretariat, uh, the cabinet secretariat, which is an office that effectively serves the prime minister. From 1841 to 1916, the prime minister was without his own department. The treasury in the UK is the all-powerful department. It's a mighty department with the best brains, the best knowledge, and it is able to um, it, it's able to dominate uh, all other departments and secretaries of state in the British system of central government. The uh, information is power and the power of the budget, the power of the purse, even though the Prime Minister is known by the title First Lord of the Treasury, the Chancellor is only the Second Lord of the Treasury, nevertheless, a series of successive Chancellors have um, accumulated power within uh, their office, the Prime Minister knows that they can, it's very difficult for them if they sack them politically. They might be able to sack one, but it usually comes back to bite them. When uh, Thatcher got rid of her Chancellor, uh, Nigel Lawson in 1989, she was never the same again. All powerful Tony Blair could never, in, from Prime Minister from 97 to 2007, could never sack his Chancellor. Gordon Brown will never have the political power uh, to do it. So um, they've accumulated their power in part because of prime ministerial impotence, in part because of command of the data, command of the budgetary process, um, access to the top brains, and the knowledge that to lose a chancellor is very bad news for the prime minister because their credibility as prime minister rests upon their economic prowess. And if they are sacking significantly upon the country's economic prowess, success story, and if they're sacking the person who is the author of that economic story, it's hard then not to have a, uh, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and which the prime minister is reluctant to, to, to court. So prime ministers often have to bite their cheeks. The Chancellor is the one person who makes the Prime Minister sweat. What, in your opinion, makes for a successful premiership? 
getting out at the right time, uh, which none of them do, knowing what you want to do, which few of them do, knowing how to do it, which not many of them know know about, certainly not early on, Uh, picking one or two agenda-changing issues which uh, go with the grain of history and calling them right, whether you've uh, brought them into the agenda yourself uh, or whether the agenda's been thrust upon you, handling them well, uh, and then leaving before things turn nasty. What five recommendations do you suggest would enhance the functions and powers of the Prime Minister? Well, the Prime Minister is overworked and doesn't have enough time for strategic thinking or relaxing or doing normal things like uh, being with friends and going out to dinner and uh, walks in the country and, and seeing sport and going to cinema, seeing the latest James Bond. I mean, the Prime Minister doesn't have have time to do these things, and so they need to devolve power to a deputy overseeing domestic policy and a deputy who should be the foreign secretary overseeing foreign policy. So some of the churn of, uh, uh, of foreign policy work needs to be done by somebody else rather than he and his team, he or she and their team. Secondly, uh, number 10 needs to be um, uh, much more uh, professional. Um, at the moment, the Prime Minister tends to bring in their cronies uh, and then get surprised and vexed and start shouting at them when they're not doing their job, but they have no idea how to do the job. It's not sufficient uh, justification to go and work in that office by being a good mate or an old school or university friend of the Prime Minister. And it, it, it's so amateur, it, it, it defies belief. Thirdly, uh, there's got to be a lot more experts in number 10, scientists, mathematicians, epidemiologists, uh, dare I say historians. I, it's astonishing that we have heads of economics, but not heads of history. So uh, the expertise count needs to come up. Uh, fourthly, it needs to become uh, more diverse in terms of... Um, so it's a better representation. To have had only two prime ministers out of 55 who are women and to have had none who are black or, or, uh, or Asian uh, or, or uh, of, of different and diverse backgrounds. in 19 have been to just one school uh, in Britain, which is about a mile from where we're talking now. It, it, um, it, 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 there needs to be more women, more people of colour, more people from across the country, not just um, from the southeast of England. And finally, the imbalance with the Chancellor's Exchequer needs to be redressed. The Prime Minister needs to take over chairing the key um, uh, economic policy committee in government from the from the Chancellor. And the Chancellor you need, needs to have some independent power, but they have much too much independent power that causes friction and dissonance in the heart of government. It politicises what, for uh, the greater part, can actually be a non-political process. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Sir Anthony, what would it be? That it's uh, enormous fun and, and, and full of extraordinary romance and coincidence and um, oddities. Um, all the 55 people who serve the Prime Minister are very unusual people. 
uh, often they've been damaged in some ways, lost them and lost uh, a parent or have some early tragedy that's driven them on. Um, not many of them enjoy the process of being number 10, though they will say that they do, and not many of them enjoy the post-premiership, which is extraordinarily difficult uh, as they try to find a, a way uh, through. Uh, and many recognize that they didn't make the most of their opportunities while they had time in number 10, uh, and they'll never have that same power uh, and opportunity again, and that's you know, very painful. And the psychological strain on the Prime Minister is, uh, is immense, and that's why you have to have a, um, you have to have a um, personality able to cope with it. Very, very few can. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Sir Anthony Selden, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel, New Books Network. Thank you, Sir Anthony. Uh, Charles, thank you for asking great questions. You know, and, and one of the one of the delights uh, of talking to somebody who's very thoughtful is that the questions they ask make you rethink things. Always my best teacher uh, is teaching or, or, or talking uh, and responding and, and, and thinking things through. Um, thank you. You've really stimulated me. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening.